Section 1 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 1 The Vampire Nemesis in setting down the train of events that occurred at Ningpo on that horror-filled night of August 18, I shall make no attempt to justify or excuse my own conduct, nor that of my friend, the end of whose troubled career I shall here endeavor to portray. Nor would I wish that any who should scan this page should believe that there was aught supernatural about the occurrence. I make no doubt but that all could be readily explained away on grounds purely natural by one who had been a calm observer of the facts effects they were, and not some horrible nightmare on which I look back shuddering, one not possessed of the overwrought mind in a state of nervous tension such as at the time was mine. I set them forth here for what they may be worth, and leave the reader to draw his own conclusions. My reason for reverting at all to so painful a subject, the bare recollection of which even now causes the cold beads of terror to gather, must be that the spirit of my friend and college chum cries to me from the grave that justice be done him, that his memory be cleared of the foul stain of murder, leaving nevertheless that of base treachery and fiendish cruelty. After years of wavering irresolution, I took up my pen to reopen that chapter of horror. One word more ere I commence. Those who were at Ningpo at that period now so many years ago will doubtless remember some of the incidents which at that time made such a sensation, and should they here under the assumed names recognize the actors in the terrible tragedy, let them know that hereby one of them sends greeting. Ferguson and I had been close friends since those early days at Cambridge, when all the world looked rosy and life lay before us. Study had never been our forte, and it was perhaps in a mutual avoidance of lectures that we were thrown so much together. In all the sports we had stood premier. Ferguson had had the proud distinction of pulling in the College Eight, while I had competed, unsuccessfully it is true, for the Diamond Skulls at Henley. At cricket and football we were both adepts, and with the gloves neither of us were to be lightly handled. It was only within the bounds of the lecture room that we allowed our inferiority to any, and these, as I said before, we avoided as religiously as our remaining at college would admit the very natural result of which was that, on our leaving and stepping on to the platform of the world we found, to our chagrin, that it was heads that were required there in the scrimmage, and that arms, be they never so well seasoned, were almost a superfluity, unless one had a fancy for bricklaying or some kindred occupation. It was about this time that glowing reports commenced to reach England of the gold that lay beneath the fertile soil of British Guiana the old El Dorado of Sir Walter Raleigh, and Ferguson and I resolved upon going out to see for ourselves if somewhere at least sinews were not in requisition. As a result, we did dig some gold, or rather washed it, for it was all alluvial deposits, but we buried much more silver, and after a year we came away in disgust. Our next billet was at the other end of the world, where, still together, we each got a berth on the two papers that the tiny town in the Malay states could boast. There, being better hands at satire than the respective editors, we used to write the slashing editorials about each other that was nearly all the papers contained. 
to an outsider with a sense of humor, it must have been intensely amusing to see the two who in the columns of their journals had been vilifying each other, seeking among their extensive vocabulary for a name blah enough drinking an amicable glass together later in the day. However, there being not enough inhabitants able to read to keep one paper going, the two journals, with a praiseworthy pertinacity, choked each other to death, and with their demise Ferguson and I were once more thrown on our own resources. Yet there exists a certain gentleman of much maligned character who is reported to look after his own, and he now led us to join the Chinese Imperial Customs Service. Thus we drifted from port to port, until we were finally stationed at Ningpo, with every prospect of it being a permanency, and it is here that my story may be said to commence. There being then no customs quarters there, we each rented a small flat by the riverside, on opposite sides of the stone-flagged street, and about fifty yards apart, and with a Chinese girl as housekeeper proceeded to make our lives as comfortable as might be. I have no desire to pose as a model of virtue. We were neither of us married, but those girls were as faithful to us as any European woman firmly tied in the bonds of western wedlock could have been. And here, in relating how Ferguson came by his housekeeper, I must paint in the first dark stain that marred his character. Under him was a half-caste watcher who had a lovely young wife, a girl of little more than eighteen also with an obvious strain of western blood in her veins, though she affected the Chinese costume and spoke but little better pidgin English than her pure-blooded sisters. This man Ferguson pursued with the most implacable hatred I have ever seen him exhibit toward any human being, until the poor fellow, who went by the name of Matthews, God knows where he got it from, was never out of hot water. Fine after fine was imposed upon him, sometimes with justice, however unmerciful, more often without, until one day I angrily remonstrated with Ferguson on his gross injustice. His only reply was a curtly expressed desire that I would mind my own business, and as I did not care to come to an open rupture with him for the sake of a half-caste, nothing more was said. At last poor Matthews fell into a trap, which I firmly believe had been deliberately laid for him at the instigation of Ferguson, and was dismissed from the service. This misfortune reduced the unhappy pair to the verge of starvation, and it was then that I saw the ghastly malignity of Ferguson's relentless persecution. He had been paying surreptitious attentions when chance offered to the young girl wife, and now, having so successfully ruined the husband, he offered her a home beneath his own roof, which she accepted with alacrity. I suppose I must confess that, after the first burst of anger at Ferguson's treachery to the watcher, I condoned the hideous offense. After all, Ferguson was my old college chum, and perhaps at heart I was as bad myself, lacking but opportunity. And so for five months everything ran smoothly. May, as Ferguson called his partner in guilt, took readily to her altered fortunes and changed manner of living, nor seemed in the least to regret the loss of her legitimate lord. Ebay, we heard, had taken to opium-smoking, and during his few hours of wakefulness sought employment as a coolie in the rice-fields on the opposite side of the river. Ebay had never been more than a barely perceptible step above the surrounding Chinamen, but now in his degradation he had sunk to the level of the lowest. Yet Ferguson felt no remorse for what was so obviously his handiwork. One dark night early in February, Ferguson and I returned late from the newly erected customs club and stopped opposite my door. He had taken to drinking rather deeply, 
and I had stayed on beyond my usual hour to keep an eye on him and prevent him, if possible, from imbibing to excess. The flat I occupied was over a Chinese shop, and to reach the staircase one had to go through the small go-down to the side to a little courtyard at the back, and so through the door leading to the stairs. Now, as we stood talking, Ferguson was pressing me to step round to his place and sample a bottle of particularly good whiskey he had obtained from a ship on which he had been stationed. But I firmly declined. It was late, I said, past midnight. Ferguson would take no denial. Come along, he said. It isn't twelve yet. May will have something hot in readiness for us. You need not stay long. Not twelve, I echoed. I wouldn't mind betting it is past one. Done for five dollars, said Ferguson, smiling. Right, come upstairs and look at the clock. We turned and walked through the go-down into the courtyard beyond. But we had no need to ascend the stairs as we stood there. The little clock I kept in my room, Bow Bells, Ferguson called it, chimed out musically and we both stood still to listen. I thought as we stood there that I heard a faint stir as of someone entering in the go-down beyond, but paid no heed. The little clock ran through its preliminary chime, then struck one. There, I cried triumphantly. But scarcely had the sound died away on the stairs, when there came the thunderous report of a revolver, fired point-blank in a confined space, and as the reverberations echoed through the go-down, Ferguson staggered with a stifled cry to the wall. Another shot followed closely on the other, and locating the marksman by the flash of the weapon in the darkness of the go-down, I made a rush at him, and went sprawling over something soft and yielding, lying full across the doorway. I struck a match and bent over it. It was Matthews, or rather the wreck of Matthews, lying there with a tiny stream of blood bubbling out from his temple and trickling across the floor, a smoking pistol, an antiquated bulldog, gripped in his hand. Without waiting to see more, I threw the match away and ran back to see how Ferguson had fared. I found him leaning against the wall, pale but smiling, trying to staunch the flow of blood from a flesh wound in the shoulder. "'Near thing that, Ward,' he said coolly as I inquired anxiously where he was hit. "'A little lower, and it would have finished me.' "'Where are you hit?' I asked again. "'Left shoulder. Mere scratch.' He sat down on an empty box while I helped him off with his coat. "'Wonder who was the potter?' he said presently. "'Matthews,' I answered. "'Damn him!' cried Ferguson furiously, springing to his feet. "'The cursed swine! He shall pay for this!' "'He has paid already,' I said quietly. "'How?' "'He is outside with a bullet in his brain,' I answered briefly. "'This night's work was not to my liking.' "'That's right,' Ferguson said brutally. "'I'm glad he did the job neatly on himself, just as glad that he bungled it on me.' "'Ferguson,' I said sternly, "'this is your doing.' Pshaw, nonsense. The girl did not want to stay with him, and one must oblige a lady when it lies in one's power so to do. A crowd was already gathering, attracted by the report, and as Ferguson did not want to be mixed up in the matter, he hastily slipped up to my room and washed and bandaged his arm. Then we sauntered down to where they were gathered round the dead men, leaving it to be inferred that he had simply committed suicide in the street and tumbled into the open doorway. Jolly glad, said Ferguson when all was quiet again that it did not happen at my place. People would have twigged. I suppose he was lying in wait for me at my door, and when he saw us come in here, followed with the intention of potting me when I came out. Things fell back into their old groove, and months slid by. 
The only change was that, despite my efforts to keep him straight, Ferguson took to drinking deeper and deeper, and poor May had a hard time of it when he came home drunk, for he ill-used her shamefully. Remonstrance was in vain. When he was in his cups, it was utterly useless to attempt to argue with him, and next morning, when he was sobered, no one was more contrite, as be viewed the bruises on the girl's tender flesh than Ferguson himself. Still, she stuck to him, doing her best to keep him from the drink, nor ever complaining to him or anyone else of his brutality. So matters went on until that eventful August night, when began the most frightful series of events it has ever been the lot of mortal man to witness or chronicle. It was a close, sultry night, with that ominous stillness which to my mind always presages some form of disaster. My housekeeper had long ago retired for the night, and I was sitting near the open window smoking and wondering idly what had become of Ferguson, whom I had not seen for three days. On one of his bursts again was my conclusion. I would have to look him up in the morning and give him a talking to, though I smiled bitterly to myself as I thought of how little use that would be. Things could not go on like this, however, if Ferguson did not want to be dismissed from the service. While I yet pondered on his folly, footsteps creaked on the stairs without, and I looked round to see the man of whom I was thinking standing in the doorway. His eyes were bloodshot and protruding, and his hair. He had come in without a hat, fairly standing on end. His clothes were in disorder, and there was a look of wild terror in his face as he staggered into the room that for the moment alarmed me. The next I muttered to myself, drunk again, as I had crossed to the table beside which he had collapsed into a chair. He raised his head as I sat down opposite him, and looked wildly round the room as though searching for a presence he could feel but could not see. Ward, he said suddenly, turning his terror-stricken eyes on me, do you believe in ghosts? Spirits? I asked, contempt in my tones as I pointed to the whiskey bottle on the sideboard. Yes! So do you, or you would not be here now in that disgusting state. He flung up his head impatiently. Do you believe in transmigration? He asked again. Ferguson, the cool, the resolute, was trembling like a scared kitten. I thought we settled all that to our entire satisfaction years ago at college, I told him. But he went on wildly, unheeding my jesting treatment of the matter. War, do you think it possible that a man, we will say a Chinaman, could come back to Earth in the form of a vampire to haunt one who has wronged him? Why? I queried amusedly. Have you seen him? His face was ashen with terror and his lips livid as he muttered, I have. My dear man, I laughed. You've got him again. Got him badly. For this time, your rats have wings. He answered nothing, only looked apprehensively around the room. I went on. Best rat poison for vampires and such, Ferguson, is a course of strict teetotalism and a few doses of bromide administered not to them but to yourself. But my irony was lost on him. Listen, Ward, said he, gripping my arm as in a vice, and there was something of deadly earnestness in his voice that forced my attention. Last night, I came home from the club as usual. I had no need to ask him in what state, as usual, was I knew, alas, too well, and went to the little cupboard where I had stowed three bottles of whiskey that I had obtained from the chief officer of one of Butterfield's boats discharging sugar in the river in order to continue the orgy and found them gone. He stopped and glanced round the room again. Good job for you, said I unsympathetically, he continued. I went in and shook May out of her sleep and asked her what she had done with them. 
but she professed entire ignorance of them until I gripped her arm till she writhed in pain. He groaned, and from that I concluded that he must be sober now, but suffering from delirium tremens. Then she cried out in her agony that she had smashed them so that I should not drink myself to death. But I told her roughly she lied, and that I would not release her until she showed me where she had hidden them. She only sobbed, Have makey break, have makey break. Then ward in a frenzy of drunken passion, I got a length of cord and bound her slender wrists and ankles to the head and foot rails of the bed. Bound them, he shuddered violently, until I could see the cords cutting into the tender flesh and her delicate limbs swelling under the torture. And I stood beside her and laughed in glee while she moaned, Have makey break, true have makey break. His head sank on his arms, and he groaned again in anguish of remorse. I rose to my feet in sudden heat, and strode to his side, shaking him roughly by the collar. Ferguson, I cried fiercely, is this true? Answer me, man, is this true? As true, he replied miserably, is that I look forward to burning in hell for it. You cur, I cried, flinging him from me, for I knew the depth of the girl's devotion to him. He did not resent it, nor attempt to excuse himself, only looked up at me with a bitter laugh. A laugh that reminded me of the savage snarl of a wounded hyena, and I shuddered involuntarily. Listen, Ward, for there is more to come. I took two or three hasty turns to and fro, then sat down opposite to him again. He went on with feverish haste, eager to get it over. I left her there, Ward. Left her in torture. His voice rose almost to a wail. Left her and went back into the other room. A gust of wind from the open window had blown the lamp out, and the room was in darkness. And as I stood there, gloating like a fiend over the moans that came from the bed in the other room, something swept up against the closed window. A moment later it had returned and fluttered in through the open one. He stopped suddenly, and a violent trembling shook his frame. Ward, it was the... thing. What the... Yes, he cried eagerly, the vampire. I felt in no mood to laugh at his absurd fancy now. I felt too shocked at the cruel treatment he had meted out to me. It came into the room ward and flapped in ever-lessening circles round my head. I struck out wildly at it, for I was intoxicated and did not fear it at the time. But it took no notice of my vicious lunges. It sailed three times round my head, then, as I thought, flapped its way out again through the open window. I looked at my watch. It was exactly one o'clock. Firm said on getting more drink, I left the house again, leaving May to her agony, and made my way back to the club. It was closed, but I had made the boy give me a full bottle of whiskey, saying I wanted a peg, and brought it away with me. I must have drunk half of it before I got back to the house, and when I went in, I found the groans had ceased. I went to May's bedside. The curtains at the window stirred slightly, and he broke off suddenly with a great start, terror writ large in his face. Ward, he cried with livid lips. It is coming, the thing. Nonsense, I said. I was a puff of wind. The man was utterly unnerved. I had to pacify him as one soothes a little child. Go on with your vile story, I told him at last. I went to May's side, and there Ward was the thing on her face. It had its head just under her ear, with its great wings slowly fanning. Ward! He almost shrieked. It was sucking her life's blood. Do you hear me? Sucking her blood. She had swooned with the pain of the cords and the horror of this thing. And I, 
I stood there, made fearless with drink, laughing in devilish joy at the sight I saw. How long I stayed, I do not know, but at last I sank down in stupor beside the bed. I knew nothing more until this morning. And then, I asked. I was getting interested in this curious mental aberration of Ferguson's. Then, when I arose, he broke out in sudden fury. She was dead. Dead, Ward. Dead, dead, dead. Suddenly, he grew deadly calm, going on with the quietness of a surgeon diagnosing a case. There was a tiny puncture under her ear, just on the jugular vein, with a little globule of blood no bigger than a bead exuding from it. But the pillow was bathed in blood, soaked through and through. Matters were looking black indeed, for I had no doubt at the time that Ferguson had killed her in the frenzy of his drunken passion. Afterward, I had no cause to change my mind. I think it must have dazed me, for I threw myself across her cold body and lay there until the moment before you saw me he continued vacantly. I got up then, leaving her poor, stiffened limbs still bound to the bed rails and came on here. Ferguson, I said gravely, do you realize what this means, lad? It means murder. And murder is an ugly word, even in China, Ferguson. I realize what it means, he answered gloomily, and I almost rejoice at it. It will prove one thing. It will prove that justice, though in the abstract drawing a wrong conclusion from her premises, will yet to be right in the fundamental fact. What fact? For having come to the same conclusion myself, I did not follow the drift of his reasoning. The fact, he replied with a harsh laugh, that I murdered her. Though I swear to you, Ward, that no drop of her blood was shed by hand of mine. I smiled pityingly. And as I still smiled, the little clock in the next room chimed out, then paused for a second and struck one. The smile and the words I was about to utter froze on my lips, for I felt the hair gradually rising on my head with vague, undefined apprehension. At the same moment, something struck with a muffled thud against the side of the open window, and I heard a soft, insistent flapping of wings. A sudden puff of wind from somewhere fanned my cheek, as on the floor I saw the dark shadow of some huge thing that was fluttering slowly around the room. For a space I was too terrified to look up, and when I raised my eyes it was to see a black, shapeless mass flapping through the open window into the blackness of the night beyond. Ferguson had covered his eyes with his hand as he cowered in his chair shrunk into himself. Now he raised his head and put out a palsied hand, seizing my arm as he whispered hoarsely, Ward, did you see it? See what? I asked uneasily, more to give myself time to recover my equanimity. It! The thing! By this I had regained my composure and was ready to laugh at my foolish fancy. What thing? I asked him again. The vampire, said Ferguson in the same sepulchral whisper. Bosh, I answered lightly. There was something came into the room, but it was merely a large bat attracted hither by the light. It was a vampire, insisted he. The vampire. We are not in South America now, I replied testily, thoroughly ashamed of my sudden fears. And there are no vampires in China. Nevertheless, Ferguson repeated doggedly, it was a vampire. A flying fox, perhaps, I told him. And they are harmless, herbivorous like the bats. I was puzzled what to do with Ferguson. 
I could not leave my old chum to be taken in my own house, much as he might deserve it. At last, an idea came to me that would at least give us more time. Ferguson, I asked, breaking in on the dream into which he had fallen, did you lock your door before you came away? Lock it? No, why? Give me your keys, was all I said. He handed them to me, and leaving him sitting there, I sped across the room and gained his house. Everything was in darkness, but prompted by an impulse of curiosity I could not control. I crept softly into the bedroom and struck a match. Perhaps, after all, the whole thing was but a fancy of his distorted brain and all might yet be well. As the match flared up, I held it above my head and looked around. Ah, no. There was the poor girl lashed, as he had described the bed. The cord sunk deep into the tender flesh. The pillow, too, was drenched in blood, as he had said. And as I bent over her, I saw a small incision in her neck, just below the ear. It was true enough, then. But in spite of that curious little puncture in the fair skin, I still believed this ghastly thing was the terrible handiwork of my friend, and turned away with a shudder, locking the door ere I left. I returned to Ferguson, trying by my relation of plans for his escape to rouse him from the apathy into which he had sunk. To have attempted to get away by one of the regular Shanghai boats would have been suicidal folly. But there was a Jardine steamer sailing for Hong Kong in two or three days' time and if he could stow away in her, I hoped he might be able to conceal himself in some remote corner of the world before the hounds of justice were set on his track. I explained to him that I would report him ill to the comptroller, so allaying suspicion for his non-appearance, and when the boat was ready to sail, he was to slip out and sneak on board, trusting to chance to explain away his presence when she was once at sea. No one would be likely to go to his rooms, and provided he lay low in mine, he would have a very fair chance of success." Ferguson, for his part, looked on the whole matter indifferently and took very little interest in the maturing of the plans for his own safety. Very surprised was my little housekeeper to find when she awoke next morning that my friend had spent the night on the couch in the other room. Of course, we told her nothing of what had occurred, nor did we think it wise to tell her that he would spend two or three days with us, deeming it better to let her find out for herself as the time passed, and he still made no move to go to his own home. Now that I come to the last part of this terrible history— I hesitate to set it down, lest it should be looked upon as a mere freak of my imagination. And yet, I have not said enough to clear my old friend's name of the black stain of murder, and establish his innocence. Wherefore I must proceed, though discredit be cast upon the close of the tragedy. Yet I myself, as I look back from the vantage coin of these after years, feel a dread steal over me, lest, after all, it should be nothing but the coincidence of a large bat having flown into my room at the precise hour of one, and on another night having hovered near Ferguson's head at the same eerie hour. The rest may have been but the delusions of his drink-maddened brain and my own overwrought fancy. I dread the thought that it may be so. For if such a series of extraordinary coincidences be possible, then it means that Ferguson was a foul murderer. But speculation is idle. Let me finish the gruesome narrative. That night of pain and horror wore slowly away, and never before since have I watched the gray dawn creep slowly up from the east with such feelings of gratitude and relief. The ensuing day, too, passed away without event. So also another night and a day crept by. I had to leave Ferguson during each day in order to attend my duties, but I reported him at headquarters on well, telling the customs doctor that it was his intention to call shortly and let him prescribe. 
The fourth night since the poor girl lying now so stark and swollen in that silent house had met her death closed in, and a strange change fell upon Ferguson. Tomorrow at dawn he was to escape to safety in the outgoing Jardine steamer. And as yet we fancied ourselves secure in the certainty of no one having entered the house of death. But Ferguson seemed to have abandoned all hope of flight, or rather, a gloomy despondency that whispered to him of its futility had settled like a black pall over his being. All through the early part of that dreadful night I sat talking to him, trying one moment to soothe his craven fears, and the next to rouse him from the apathy of his despair. He was completely unnerved, and had a shuddering premonition that the thing was hovering near, spite of my repeated assurances that, except for ourselves, the room was empty. Suddenly, far into the night, how far I knew not then, for I had tried not to count the chimes of the low clock, his terror-sharpened perceptions caught the sharp tramp of distant feet on the flags of the little street below. He rose with shaking knees to his feet and tottered to the window. I had heard the sound, too, and followed him, peering over his shoulder. What we saw was the chief of police, with four men in the uniform of the Imperial Constabulary, standing outside Ferguson's door. As we watched, Major Barnes gave an order in a low undertone, and he and two constables advanced into the house. We stood watching, frozen into inaction until they emerged again, and with a low whistle answered from somewhere behind us, strode straight towards my door. Then as the blood rushed back to my palpitating heart, I saw what this meant for Ferguson. By some means the crime had already been discovered and the hounds of the law were on his trail. I ran round the room, looking frantically for some means of escape. The front door was impossible. The wall that bounded one side of the little court was far too high for a man to scale without due preparation. And on either side impassable go-downs, with blank walls having nor door nor window by which to gain access. He was fairly trapped like a rat in its hole. But as I gazed in despair at the wall which formed the boundary of the lane that separated us from the British consul's grounds, my heart went bounding into my throat with joy and hope. For I beheld what before had escaped my attention, a stout wire stay that, leading from the roof of the go-down beside my window, was made fast to the flagstaff within the grounds from which, in the daytime, floated the British Jack. It was nearly horizontal, inclining, if anything, slightly downwards for about thirty yards until it reached the staff. It passed well clear of the high wall, and should present no obstacle to a desperate man to traverse. I swung hurriedly toward Ferguson, who was standing at the window, his hands thrust deep in his pockets, gazing moodily down at the advancing constables. Ferguson. I was almost jocular in the intensity of my relief. Are your muscles as fit as in the old college days? Pretty well, he answered absently, without taking his eyes from the street below. I seized his arm and dragged him forcibly to the rear window. See that wire stay? I cried exultantly. You can easily traverse that hand over hand to the flagstaff, slide down and slip through the console's grounds to the riverside. Then take, steal if necessary, a sampan and try to get down to Ching Hai. There, get aboard one of the outward bound junks, bound anywhere so you can get another chance of freedom. The night is dark and not expecting to find you overhead, they are safe not to see you cross. While I spoke, I had been hastily cramming what loose money I had in the house into his pocket. He roused himself with an effort and extended his hand. "'Goodbye, war, old friend,' he said huskily. 
There was a desolate sadness, a hopelessness in his face and voice that appalled me. He was as a man to whom an impending doom had shown itself clear and strong. I grasped his hand, gulping down a lump that had risen in my throat. Goodbye, I said. Now go, there is not a moment to lose. We shall meet again. But he turned to me once more. Never. Ward, you do believe that I did not murder her, do you not? I have been a brute. But say you believe me innocent of that. Yes, yes, I cried eagerly, pushing him toward the open window. Quick, get out on the sill. He stood on the window sill and climbed up onto the wire, swinging himself out with an agility that showed me he had lost little of his old form. I stood at the window watching him with a feeling of thankfulness swinging lightly along, when I saw the thing sail swiftly out from under the overhanging eaves and flap toward him. He did not see it at first as it circled round his head, while I stood there rooted to the spot, unable to stir a finger. Suddenly it swooped down, down, until I could see the blackness of it dimly outlined against his shoulders. I could not see clearly what happened during those ten awful seconds, but his face was hidden from view, covered by the thing. I heard him give a stifled scream of horror that sounded far away, as though a blanket was being pressed firmly over mouth and nose, and he had stopped clambering. Then he let go one hand to try to tear the bat from his face and draw a breath, but he swung half round on the other arm and had to clutch the wire again with both hands to save himself from falling. He turned in frantic terror, trying to regain the window ledge, and as he came on I, with a cold sweat standing thick on my brow, could see the frightful form pressed close to his face. Three steps he took like that, then he stopped, and his body swayed helplessly as, with another muffled scream, his hold of the wire relaxed and he went crashing down to the courtyard beneath. I heard his skull crush in like an eggshell as his head struck the stone flags thirty feet below. And while I yet gazed, sick at heart, with the blood frozen in my veins, the horrible thing rose from where he had fallen and fluttered up toward me. Still, I could not stir, only gaze horrified at the monster as it flapped to the wire and hooking on its hinder claws about six feet from the window, hung suspended head down. A ray of light from the lamp at my back fell upon it, as it turned its hideous head toward me, and I could see the malignant, beady eyes looking piercingly into mine. I saw, too, the triangular piece of erect cartilage on the end of the nose that distinguishes the vampire. And as I sank to the floor... In merciful oblivion, the handle of the door rattled as it swung open, disclosing Major Barnes with four constables at his back. For an instant, I saw him standing there, peering anxiously about the room. Then, as the darkness swept down and engulfed my failing spirit, the little clock within chimed out merrily, paused for a moment, and told one. End of section one.